So a few minutes ago, I met someone who visiting family, and they, I believe, the climbers, and they said they were here last year, but I was not here. Uh, Katie was in process of having a baby, and so I'm just so glad to get to be here with you for Easter this year. <laughs> so Katie started having contractions on Easter morning, and I, you know, I called Aubrey because Drew was, uh, he was on call for to be here in my place, but Drew had changed my ringtone to a kind of siren. I, I don't know why he did this. And every time we would text, he would his heart would start beating really fast. And so Drew had asked me, please don't play a joke on me that, that morning. Please don't. And so I decided I'm going to call Aubrey first because I don't want to alert Drew too early to what's going on. So I called Aubrey and I said, Aubrey, I think we can make it. Like, I don't think the baby's going to be born before the service is over. And, yeah, you know where I'm going with this. So, so Kevin, come on. So Drew was here. Now, as a lot of you know, Evangeline was not born until, uh, you know, the next morning, early the next morning, about 11.45 that night, Easter night, Katie said, okay, it's time to go. So we drove to the birthing center, and then Evangeline was born like 16 minutes later. Um, I always think it's funny how different people remember aspects of stories like these differently. You know what I'm talking about? So, for instance... I thought I was driving a pretty appropriate speed to get us to the birthing center. But Katie tells me now that I was barely hitting the speed limit and that she was praying she didn't have the baby in the car. I just don't remember it that way. But that's the way it can be with events like this, right? So there is so much in the gospel stories that has obviously been reflected on for a very long time as it's being written. The passion narratives, for instance, which a lot of us have heard through this week, you can simply tell on close reading that the authors have carefully meditated on these events. They've reflected deeply on their meaning, and in very artful ways, they're trying to draw us deeper into their significance. <coughs> then you get to the resurrection. And suddenly the style changes. It's not as if they haven't thought it through, but the slow and methodical narrative shifts, and it's as if everything just burst onto the page. There's a quality of rawness about these stories. A quality of mysteriousness. The holy authors of the New Testament are struggling to find a way of speaking adequately about something for which there's absolutely no precedent. We need to hear this. There is no precedent, precedent for trying to describe resurrection. There is none. They are trying to find a way of making real a mystery. Not a mystery in the sense of something that's obscure, something that needs to be clarified, but a mystery in the sense of something that is too big to be contained. How do I describe this? How do I make this real for you? Between the four gospel accounts that we have of the resurrection, we have a tumult of different voices about what happened on the first Easter day. Who all was at the tomb the first time, when they were at the tomb, who encountered Jesus first, and where they encountered Him. And the slight variances in the voices. This has been and is still used as ammunition by some to say that the resurrection story is obviously just not true. It's made up. But this, it just doesn't square 
as a, a way of talking about this. You know, Katie and I might tell the story of our drive to the birthing center a little differently, but we both know we were going to a birthing center to have a baby. The tumult of voices around the resurrection reflects just that excitement and confusion that are the marks of people speaking about life-changing experiences and world-changing moments. This is real. We cannot underestimate the shock and disbelief that this encounter held for the people involved. We cannot assume, well, that they didn't know the science that we know, so of course they would have thought he rose from the Oh, like lots of people today, non-Christians, but honestly Christians too, to speak of resurrection in a world full of so much darkness and death. Frankly, a world where it's become expected to look on the news on an Easter morning like today and see hundreds of Christians who have already been killed by suicide bombers. Did you know this? In Sri Lanka, already hundreds of Christians have been killed for celebrating, celebrating Easter. To speak of resurrection in this type of world sometimes sounds just like it did to the apostles, like an idle tale. I want to share with you what I believe is one of the most difficult barriers to believing in the resurrection. And I'm sharing it not only because some people openly struggle with it, but also because Christians every so often need to be reconverted into this belief. Without realizing it, Christians slip into disbelief through a general malaise about our faith or at the worst moments through hopelessness and despair. And when this happens, we just have to be reconverted. This is what we need. So here is what I believe is one of the greatest barriers to belief in the resurrection. Believing in the resurrection of Jesus means believing that the world, as it is, has changed. It has changed. In the middle of history, it changed. A world in which resurrection happens is not the same world that it once was. The ground has shifted beneath our feet. All of a sudden, within a world that is filled with decay, there's something or there's someone who is not subject to the same rules. <clears throat> this is what made the resurrection so difficult for the women and the disciples to believe. It's the thing that makes it so difficult for many people in our world to believe. Now, to be clear, the Jews believed that resurrection could happen. But they believed it would look much differently than this. That resurrection would happen all at once for humanity was something they could get inside their heads. That it would be a completely different world all at once. But the very idea that one person could rise from the dead in the midst of our old and still battered world, this was just as foreign to them as it is to us. And right here is another place where Luke has thought the story through very carefully. So his resurrection narrative begins with verse 1 on the first day of the week at early dawn. In the biblical creation story in Genesis, on the sixth day, it was Friday, right? In the Jewish reckoning, this was Friday. The seventh day was Saturday. And God created humankind in his own image on that day. Now think of with me about the passion story. 
By the evening of Friday in the Passion story, Jesus had declared the same thing that God declared at the end of Genesis 1. It is finished. It is done. Just as the Father had finished His work of creation, so the Son finished His work of redemption, giving His life for the sins of humanity, for the brokenness of the world. But then on the seventh day, which was Saturday, God rested. And likewise, God incarnate rested in the tomb because His work was complete. But then, then, on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb and they found it empty. And this, Sunday, has become the first day of God's new creation, of God's new world. This is why Christians have long thought of Sunday as somehow being an eighth day of a seventh day week, which is to say that Sunday being the day of the resurrection represents the start of a brand new world. This, what we are doing today, is the real world. The way that the world will be in full one day. So what the story is telling us, and even if you're not a Christian, you must at least be fair to the story. What it's telling us is that Jesus' resurrection is an all-important, decisive, central moment around which the whole history of the world pivots and turns in a new direction. That in Jesus, the incorruptible and eternal God has rent the heavens and come down into our broken world, and He is here, present with us and all the brokenness of humanity. Christianity is not a religion about looking back to a great dead genius who somehow still affects us through his teachings. Instead, it looks to a Christ who is alive and who is present among us and is working to bring his resurrection to bear in our world. Charles Spurgeon was a great English preacher of the 1800s. John quoted him in our Good Friday service. And he had this beautiful turn of phrase where he said that a forest exists in the heart of an acorn. A forest exists in the heart of an acorn. Now will you go with me for a minute? In other words, within that small acorn is the possibility, the hope, even a likely guarantee that there will one day be a tree which will one day lead to many trees. Isn't that a good phrase? A forest in the heart of an acorn? Jesus' resurrection is like this for God's new creation. God's work in our world. Within Jesus' resurrection is the promise, even the guarantee of resurrection of things incorruptible and unsusceptible to the normal rules of our world's decay, spreading further into the world. How does this happen? Where does it begin? I'm glad you asked. That was the right question. It begins in the smallest of ways. Here's where we can get tripped up with the resurrection. We're constantly looking for the really big ways. But as Jesus said about the kingdom of God, the large tree of his kingdom starts as the smallest seed. You see, fundamentally what we're saying in the resurrection is that through Jesus' rising from the dead, people like you and me who've been diminished by sin and evil, all of us, 
can receive Jesus' resurrection life within ourselves. And we, in the midst of this old broken world, can change. Something incorruptible can take root in us. That is God's spirit. And it can change us. This is the miracle of the resurrection. That through Jesus and His Spirit, you can do things, become things that you could not be or do before. That the cycles, habits of brokenness that a lot of us have been stuck in all our lives, they really can change. And like Jesus, you don't have to wait until the end of time to do this. This can happen within all the encroaching darkness of the old world that we live in. St. Augustine, early church father, in his book, The City of God, said that the kingdom of God was, in effect, the lives of the saints. Think about this. The kingdom of God is the lives of the saints. If you want to see it, what God's world is like, look at the holy people that you know. Holy people show what it's like for God to rule over the world. Believing in the resurrection is difficult because it means believing that the world, even now, has changed. That through Jesus Christ, new realities are possible. But the first place that we need to say this is in our own lives. That it starts with us. So how do we believe in the resurrection? How do Christians who have become a little bit lazy in our faith, non-Christians who struggle to imagine this reality within our old world, how do we believe in the resurrection now? Wendell Berry, he's a Kentucky farmer and a poet, writer of all sorts of literature. He has this amazing line at the end of one of his poems. He says in the poem that so much of the world doesn't make sense. That to live well within our world as it is requires we do things that don't always compute and add up. Love the Lord. Love the world. Work for nothing. Take all that you have and be poor. Love someone who does not deserve it, he says. And at the end of the poem, he describes all of this type of activity as this. Practicing resurrection. Practicing resurrection. This is what we have to learn to do if we are to receive the risen Christ today. Practice the resurrection. We have to learn to practice it in physical ways. A lot of us have gotten ourselves stuck. We think that our heart is the only thing that matters. So that even if our actions are shameful, it's okay. God understands because he knows my heart. That is such a deception. That's not the way the world works. If you want your heart to be like something, then you have to do that with your physical body so that your heart can take on those traits. So, how do we begin to practice the resurrection? I want to give you two ways and we'll be, we'll be done. First is worship. Listen, if the primary place the resurrection works itself out in the world is through our own lives, by transforming us, bringing new life into us, we have to figure out how we're to change. How do we change? The way Christians have always said that people change 
that Christ comes to bear in our lives is through worship. The reason for this is that the risen Christ is most present here among His people gathered. And so when we gather in worship, we are beholding the risen Christ. So in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, he says this, We all with unveiled face behold the glory of the Lord, and we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. In worship, we behold Christ in worship through Scripture, song, prayer, and Eucharist. And during the week, this kind of worship overflows into our lives through prayer and Scripture and community. And we continue to behold Christ before us. And His Spirit living within us brings us continually more and more into His image. Now the beauty of this is that the more you surrender yourself to worship, the more you will change. Your change, it's really not up to you when it comes down to it. It's up to you to surrender, but from there the job is God's. But the other side of the coin of this is that you will only ever be changed as much as you're willing to surrender. So if worship does not become the all-consuming piece to your life, then it's going to be hard for you to change. We practice resurrection. We believe it through worship. Through beholding Christ. But there's one more way. And that's through evangelism. And let me show you what I mean here. The story of the resurrection that we read from Luke's gospel highlights a transfer of responsibility. What Jesus said and did is now the job of the people who believe in him, of the church. Notice this. So the angels in the story ask the women, don't you remember what Jesus said? His words. That he must be turned over to the hands of men, be crucified, and on the third day rise from the dead. We're told that the women did remember his words. And this becomes the place of their belief. They remember Jesus' words. So the women go and they share these same words with the apostles. The apostles don't initially believe, but after investigating, they come to faith. Now what we're talking about in evangelism is not a manipulation of people's emotions. Guilting people into praying some prayer. Instead, we're talking about embodying the life and words of Jesus and sharing these words with those that we know and love. In the way of Jesus, our sharing of his words has to be an incarnational act, meaning it is an embodied act of love. Now, this type of evangelism that we're talking about is at the same time easy and very difficult. It's easy because all it's really about is being human. Being human before God and with human beings. Loving them as Christ has loved us. Sharing with them the love of Christ. In that sense, it, it's easy. It's not the Christian version of waterboarding where you force people to have a conversation they simply don't wish to have. So in that sense, it's easy. 
But it's difficult because this type of evangelism requires you to be closer to Jesus yourself. This is why it's difficult. Let me put it this way. If you're not following Jesus, you can't do evangelism. Or at least not very well. If you are following Jesus, you can't not do evangelism. Because it's who you are. This is the kind of evangelism we're talking about. Where we embody the life of Jesus. His death and His risen life. And we go in that kind of love to the people that we love. And we share Christ with them. Here is the promise and the comfort that we need to take in evangelism. Listen, the apostles didn't listen to the women's words, did they? Not at first. The promise and comfort is that you yourself will understand more fully who Jesus is the more people you try to share him with. You see, even if people don't listen, you will know Jesus more closely because Jesus said the world rejected me, it will also reject you. But he also says they will know you by your love. And so either way, you will come more close to Jesus. The more people you pray for, the more people you love because of Jesus, you will come closer to Jesus. How do we practice resurrection? We do it through worship and we do it through evangelism, through embodying the love of God before others, before other humans who are made in His image. The good news of the resurrection is that Jesus is alive and at large in our world. He is alive and at large in us, seeking to bring His resurrection life to bear in us. Don't you want to believe this? Won't you believe it? That His resurrection can change you. And if it can change you, then it can change the world. Now we can believe it. If it can change you, it can change the world. So let's learn to practice His resurrection this Easter season. In the words of a poet that I love, let him Easter in us. Let his resurrection grow up in us as we practice it. Christ is risen. He is, he is risen, risen indeed. Alleluia. Alleluia. Alleluia.